As you begin to read the New Testament, you are struck, struck with its explosive beginning. Matthew chapter 1 describes the miraculous conception of a virgin girl, along with an angelic visitation and the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And then chapter 2, the visitation of the Magi, who were the powerful kingmakers of the ancient world, come to worship Christ. Chapter 3 records the astonishing ministry of the prophet John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Christ. Jesus is then baptized, and the Father declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit himself descends upon Jesus, anointing and empowering him for ministry. And then chapter 4, Satan brings the full force of his assaults and temptations against Jesus. And Christ emerges from all of that victorious. The Lord then begins his ministry, healing every disease, casting out demons, and most importantly, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5 begins the Lord's masterful first recorded sermon in the New Testament. And at its conclusion in chapter 7, the people are awestruck. They are amazed at his teaching. Chapter 8, Jesus heals leprosy. He calms a storm. He casts demons out of violent men. What an astonishing start to the New Testament. But as Jesus' ministry continues, you notice something surprising. You start seeing problems, very big problems. The leaders of Israel reject Christ. And more than rejection, they see him as a threat to their religious system, their power. They can't just ignore him, so they begin to oppose him. Unable to deny his miraculous power, what do they do? Chapter 9, they say that Satan is giving him this power. In chapter 10, as Christ sends his apostles out, he tells them that they too will be hated and opposed. And there will be such division that even family members will betray each other to death. And then chapter 11, John the Baptist himself is imprisoned, and he has doubts. He wonders if Christ really is the Messiah. In that chapter, Christ announces three cities where he did most of his ministry. Why? Because of their spiritual apathy and complacency. And then chapter 12, there is more conflict, even more opposition from religious leaders, and they begin conspiring together how they might destroy Jesus. So think of all of this from the disciples' perspective. Wait, wait, time out. What is going on? This isn't the way that it's supposed to happen. They thought that the king would come, and he would quickly establish his kingdom, and anyone 
who dared to oppose him would be obliterated. So what in the world is happening? What kind of kingdom is this? Maybe you've had similar questions as well. When you first came to faith in Christ, it was so wonderful, right? You were thrilled that the Lord delivered you from your sin. That he gave you a right relationship with God. Your life was filled with joy. You were so excited to share Christ with your family and your friends. There was a powerful hopefulness in your life. But then came a surprise. Maybe discouragement when your family and friends weren't interested in Jesus. Maybe even mocking salvation. Bad things happened in your life. And you wondered why. Why would the Lord allow this to happen? As you look at the world around us today, it seems that evil is overcoming good. That the kingdom of darkness seems to be triumphing over the kingdom of God. Why? What is going on? What is God's purpose in all of this? Well, to answer these questions, Christ teaches a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13, explaining the mystery of his kingdom and God's surprising strategy. In the first parable of the sower, Jesus explains the question, who? Who are those who are truly in Christ's kingdom? Not those who reject him, not those who seem to initially receive him and later walk away, but those who believe his word, receiving it, whose lives demonstrate that reality by their growth and their fruitfulness. And then after explaining the question who, Jesus tackles the question what. What will happen to those who reject Christ? And Jesus answers that with the parable of the tares, explaining that God will not bring immediate judgment upon unbelievers, but delay his judgment until the end of the age, giving an opportunity for salvation. The church's mission now is not judgment, but rather evangelism, bringing that good news to the world that needs to hear that. And then in the next parables, Jesus addresses the question, why? Why would God allow this? Why does evil seem to be overcoming good? This is what the next two parables answer. Look with me. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, it's not 
that difficult to understand. In both parables, he says the kingdom of heaven is like. What is the comparison? We don't have to guess. He tells us in verse 32, both are very small. Just a very small seed. And a very small amount of leaven. And what happens to those tiny things? The small seed becomes a plant bigger than any other garden plant. The small amount of leaven permeates the entire three pecks of flour, which is about 50 pounds worth. So the point of these parables is that God has a very surprising strategy. The kingdom of heaven starts out small, like a mustard seed, but it has amazing growth. It starts out very small, like a little bit of leaven in a vast amount of flour, but it has a very powerful impact. Let's start with the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed was commonly used in, the, uh, in ancient times to represent something that was very, very small. Christ talks about having faith the size of what? Right, a mustard seed. His point, that, his point is even a small amount of faith, if it's in the Lord, can move mountains. Why? Not because of the greatness of faith, but because that little faith is put in a great God. He has promised to work in powerful ways by his grace through your faith. So here in this parable, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a very small mustard seed that grows in a tremendous way. You probably don't have one of these in your garden, but this plant can grow to be 12 to 15 feet tall, a great height for such a tiny seed. And this is what Jesus is saying, the wonder of something tiny, something so small growing to be something huge with even birds building their nests in it. And this is exactly what we see in the New Testament. In Matthew 1, the kingdom of heaven starts out very small, just a little baby born in a stable to two obscure parents in an insignificant country in the Roman Empire. That's the beginning of the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, very small. When the apostles are added, these men who are very ordinary, very unqualified, very flawed, fearful, and weak, the kingdom of heaven grows. And by the time of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the kingdom of heaven has grown a little more. Remember in Acts 1, How many believers were gathered in Jerusalem? Only 120 people. Not that impressive, right? But it keeps growing. Acts 2, about 3,000 were added on the day of Pentecost. Verse 47 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day to those who were being saved. Pretty soon, the kingdom grows past Jerusalem, past Judea and Samaria. And by the time... The New Testament is completed. The kingdom has spread throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond, making its way to the ends of the earth. 
We need to remember this because there are so many things in our world that don't make the headlines, so many things that we don't realize, so many ways that God is at work all over the world. For example, do you know how many Christians there are in communist China? Over 50 million. It took seven years for the church in Jerusalem to plant another church in Antioch. And guess how many new churches are started around the world? Over 200 a month? 200 a week? No, 200 a day. Every day, 200 churches around the world are being planted. That's 78,000 churches a year. It's been estimated that about 65,000 people profess to give their lives to Christ every day somewhere in the world. So many things that you and I just don't see. Countless lives that continue to be rescued and brought into God's kingdom. So in spite of its very small start, in spite of rejection and great opposition, God's kingdom will grow, it will flourish, it will prevail. Until what? Until the king, our king, returns and brings his kingdom to fulfillment. And his kingdom will be over all the earth. As Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And as a believer, you will reign with him. What a staggering thought that is. What a wonderfully surprising strategy God has that will one day and forever be reality. Well, that explains the mystery of the kingdom from the outward aspect. Let's continue in the next parable as it views the kingdom from the perspective of internal influence. Jesus uses another scene that was very familiar to the people of his day, that of making bread. Three pecks, as I said, is about 50 pounds of flour. That would be enough to easily feed about 100 people, probably a lot less if you have teenage boys. Right, Mom? This was a typical scene. A woman would take this large amount of flour and mix it with water and add just a little bit of leaven to make bread. Leaven is just simply a a piece of fermented sourdough that's placed in the flour and water and permeates it, creating the bread to expand and rise. Has anybody here ever made sourdough bread in your home? Oh, it's, I, I got to tell you, if you haven't, you are missing out. This is so good. We've done it, and we've done it for years. Uh, unleavened bread uh, is, it's hard, it's flat, it's dry, but leavened bread, oh, especially right out of the oven, right? It's soft, it's warm, it's spongy. In fact, this is interesting. At the wedding of a Jewish girl in those days, her mother would give her some leaven that she used in her own home. 
And this simple gift was a very cherished present as it represented the love and blessing of the home in which she grew up, which was now going to become part of this new home that was beginning. Now, leaven in scripture simply represents influence. Just like leaven influences bread dough, there are things in life that can influence you and me. In God's word, depending on the context, uh, leaven can be used in a negative way, and it is used that way, or it can be used in a positive way, as a positive influence. In this parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven isn't negative, and so this must be a positive use of this word picture of influence that Jesus is teaching. And that's the way it is. In this parable, leaven speaks of the internal influence of the kingdom of heaven. Just like leaven permeates the dough, so the kingdom permeates this world. Just like the mustard seed, it is little, just a little piece of leaven in contrast to this massive 50 pounds of flour. But just like the mustard seed, there is incredible power in that little tiny piece. Such power that it will influence the entire amount of dough. So, The point is that the kingdom of heaven isn't addition to this world. No, it's transformation of this world. And just like leaven is hidden in the dough, so Christ and his kingdom are hidden in the world. Romans 8 speaks that creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Right now, we are hidden. Think about it. There you are. At In N Out, eating your hamburger, just like everyone else around you, and you look no different, right? I mean, there's there's nothing special to see from an external perspective. From an outward appearance, it's not obvious that you are a child of God. There's no halo above your head, right? There's no uh, glow that's emanating from you. The world does not realize that you are an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. It's not possible to see that. Because according to scripture, God's children have not yet been revealed. But although it isn't externally, visibly apparent, you are God's son, you are God's daughter, and you are here in this world for a reason. You are part of his surprising strategy. You are an ambassador of Christ's kingdom and the power of Christ is at work in your life and through your life. The Lord will use you to impact this world through your testimony, through your ministry, through the fruit of his spirit in your life. This is God's surprising strategy. The growth of his kingdom is imperceptible, but It is powerful. God's kingdom is not advanced through politics. It doesn't come through legislation. It doesn't come through societal progress. It comes how? By God transforming lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It works from the inside, just like leaven. 
And that is good to remember. Do you know why? Because just like you, I can get discouraged seeing what's going on in our country and in our world, in our schools and in our government. Every day the news is is full of, of sin, of wickedness. It can be very distressing. It seems like this world is on fire. It seems like evil is winning the battle. It can be tempting to think that what we really need is to get the right people elected to office. And then with the right people in power and the right laws passed and the right appointments for judges, well, then things will finally change. And I'm all for that. But do you know what? The kingdom of God is not dependent upon that. No, God's kingdom depends on what? It depends on God. God's kingdom is going to be accomplished no matter what the opposition. That is your confidence. Christ is king and his kingdom purposes are being accomplished. And it's happening right now. It's happening in your life and it's happening in this world. There are so many blessings in this world, even surprisingly to unbelievers. Most people have no idea of the fullness of blessings Christ and his kingdom has given the world. In fact, I would say most Christians don't realize the fullness of Christ's blessings in this world. For example, consider hospitals. We take those for granted today as if they've always been around. But you know what? They haven't. In the Roman Empire, there were only a very few places for medical care. And those existed only for uh, the elite, the very important people who were considered uh, valuable. The common people had no uh, resource, no place to go for the care that they needed. But you know what? The love and the compassion of Christ changed all that. In 325, the Council of Nicaea instructed pastors to start a hospital in every cathedral city to treat everyone in need. So hospitals have been a blessing of Christ and his kingdom to this world, even to unbelievers. Here's another question. Who established Colleges and universities. It was Christians. Something we take for granted today. Colleges, universities, many of them in in every state. But they were non-existent until the kingdom of Christ made that difference. It's a remarkable story. Here's another important truth. In a world where immorality and perversion abounds, Christianity upheld the purity, the sanctity of marriage bringing goodness and blessings to children and families and society. Here's another blessing in a world where life was cheap, where women were used and despised, where children were discarded, left to die. Christianity restored the divine value placed on human life. Christianity, the kingdom 
of heaven has blessed this world in so many other ways that we just don't have time to talk about this morning. Through government and law, through civil liberties, through science, through art, through music, through humanitarian care, and on and on and on it goes. And when you as a believer are walking with Christ, following him, this will be true of you as well. Your life will be a blessing in this world to those around you. You will be that goodness of Christ to others. Your life will be his blessing, his love to others. And of course, the preeminent blessing above all of these other blessings is the miracle of God rescuing the lost from the kingdom of darkness and death through Christ delivering them into his kingdom. You have experienced that miracle, that blessing, and God has called you to be a part of that surprising strategy as you share the gospel with others so that they too will experience forgiveness and new life in Christ. Not in dramatic ways like you preaching at some massive evangelistic crusade, but in ways that are unnoticed by the world, ways that don't make television and internet news, ways like praying for someone to come to Christ, ways like reaching out to someone in love with the truth of Christ, trusting Ways like trusting Christ to work in ways that you might not even be able to see yet. Just like leaven that is hidden, God is at work. God's kingdom is advancing imperceptibly, but steadily and powerfully. His love, his kingdom will prevail There is blessing in this life, but that is only a foretaste of the glory, the wonder, the unimaginable joy and blessing that we will experience in Christ's kingdom throughout eternity. So these two parables that Christ gives are very important reminders about God's kingdom that you and I need to have until that glorious day when our king returns. It's easy, isn't it, to look at all that's not going right and become unsettled, to become discouraged, even to become distressed. And yet, it's true, there are a lot of bad things that have happened that will continue to happen in this world, but here's the question. Do you see all of the good Things that God is doing in this world? Do you see the positive of what God is doing in your life? The changes he is making. It's like what the Lord says in Isaiah 43, Behold, I am going to do something new. Will you not be aware of it? The Lord wants you As his child, to be aware of it. 
He wants you to be encouraged by that. Ask the Lord for eyes to see what he is doing all around you. You see, God has a a strategy, and it's a very surprising strategy. His ways are not our ways. His specialty is to work good in very bad circumstances. And you know what the best example in all of history is of that? It's the cross of Christ. That was the greatest injustice. That was the most heinous cruelty in all history, torturing and murdering the one who brought only love and healing and grace and truth to everyone. But God worked his greatest good through that greatest evil, bringing forgiveness and new life to all who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you receive that gift from God, you can say what Scripture says, Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of victory and joy resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And it will continue to do mighty things. So let not your heart be troubled. Be encouraged. Be very Very encouraged. Take heart. Rejoice. God is at work. Yes, there are bad things, very bad things in this world, but you know what? God has you right here for such a time as this. Do you believe that? Jesus said, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Let it shine forth, let it blaze, that men may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And as Paul, referring to that verse, says in Philippians 2, you are children of God in a crooked and perverse generation, so shine like lights in the world as you hold forth the word of truth. God is definitely at work In this world, he is definitely at work in your life to fulfill his good purposes. It might seem to others, even to you, that yours is a very ordinary life, but listen, don't be fooled. Just like an ordinary mustard seed, just like an ordinary piece of leaven, great things will come out of that through God's surprising strategy. So don't be fooled. You are Christ's ambassador. His purpose will be accomplished through you. This is the hope that you have. In fact, this is interesting. There was someone in Matthew 13 who was hearing Jesus teach those words. Who would later to go go on to write how this should impact our lives as believers. Listen to what this person writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So live your life with this hope, with this perspective. Live your life with this great confidence. Let his spirit empower you and his word guide you. And he will use you to bring his truth and grace to this broken world. To bring Jesus' blessings to others. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth taught by your Son. What a joy to know that your good purpose will prevail. How wonderful to experience our lives transformed by your grace. How marvelous it is to be a part of your surprising strategy. Thank you for the ways that you are at work in our lives and in the world. All the ways that we can see and all the ways that we can't see. May your spirit Encourage us and empower us to live lives of love, of joy, of courage, of strength, of faithfulness for Christ and his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.